Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. As those are able to please stand for our first lesson, it comes from Romans in chapter 3, starting in verse 19. Listen now to the Word of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. And He did this to show His righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that He Himself is righteous and that He justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We invite all those who are able to stand for the reading of our second lesson. Again, from one of Paul's letters this time to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let us attend to the wisdom of the Word of God. You were dead through the, tras- the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world. Following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, but God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. 
you pray with me one more time? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning and Happy New Year. It's 2015. That sounds really weird to say. I don't know about you. I'm not that old, but I am old enough to remember uh, the movie Back to the Future 2. And I was in a restaurant this week and a news story came on and they were talking about all of the ways that Back Back to the Future 2, which took place in 2015, is not that far off from 2015. And I was like, I don't know about that. Uh, the Cubs probably won't win the World Series this year, uh, but the season hasn't started, so you never know. So, you know, if uh, you're interested in making some money, like Marty McFly, bet on the Cubs. Um, but it is good to be with you uh, this morning, this new year. And to start the new year, we are going to start a new series. If, if you were with us All the way back in May, we walked through the book of Acts week by week, chapter by chapter in a tradition called Lectio Continua or Continuous Reading. We we looked at the whole book. It's quite quite a journey as we saw the birth of the church and what the Spirit was doing. And then we took time out in Advent to comprehend Christmas, to look at what is the height and the width and the length and the depth of God's love in Jesus Christ to comprehend what Christ did at Christmas, what that really means. So we're taking time now at the start of a new year to look back, to look back. The title of this series is Everything Old Has Become New. And it's a new year. So we're going to look back. The five solas. Now, I asked at the A45 service, I said, does anyone know what the five solas are? Or has anyone heard of them? And and people kind of reticently raise their hands. Um, I won't ask you to do the same, but I'm sure if you nod your head, if you've heard along or that you are familiar with the five solas. The word sola is Latin. It means only. Um, And they come to us from the Reformation. The five solas are sola scriptura, or scripture alone. The Bible alone is our highest authority. Sola fide, or faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Solus Christus, or Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. And sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God alone. So these five words, or these five ideas, the five solas, they really in, they encapsulate what the Christian faith meant to the reformers of the 16th century. And they're our roots. As the Presbyterian church, we can trace our roots back to the Reformation. And I told uh, the first service as well that... Um, We're going to have to do a little bit of church history now for a couple of minutes. So if history is not your thing, I give you permission to tune out, but don't. I mean, stay with me. But we're going to do a little bit of church history, then we're going to come back around to grace. And so to fully understand the five solas, we have to understand what it is that's happening in the Reformation. There's these five ideas 
And we find them in the readings of all of the Reformers. In fact, if you go back before the Reformers, there are, there are people named John Huss or John Wycliffe and others who are trying to reform the Catholic Church. They're not called Reformers because a lot of them were martyred before the Reformation ever happened. But they too are talking about these ideas. But it's important to note that these five ideas, the five solas, are never called the five solas by the Reformers. John Calvin doesn't ever refer to the five solas. Rather, he refers to grace, to faith, to Christ, individually. It isn't until the 1900s that we begin to see the five of them put together side by side systematically. Uh, some great theologians like Emil Bruner, Karl Barth, are some of the first people to, to begin putting these ideas together and saying, this is what the Reformation is about. The first time that all five of them show up together, and I, I share this story with you because I thought it was fascinating. The first time is in 1965. It's by a Catholic theologian by the name of Johann Baptist Metz in a book entitled The Church and the World. He's a Catholic theologian, spent some time working with Karl Rahner, who's a Protestant theologian, and he is really interested in showing how we're wrong as Protestants and the Catholic Church is right. And he's the first person to put these five ideas together. This is what he says, quote, To sum up all of this shorthand abbreviation of our faith in the five sola, lead us away from the rest of what is necessary for salvation, like the church, the sacraments, prayer, helping the poor, performing good works, etc. After all, why do all of that if at the end of the day it's just me and my Bible, me and Jesus, end quote. He's trying to show the flaws in Protestant theology because the Reformation is all about going back to Scripture, going back to the roots. It's about grace. It's about faith. It's about Christ. Scripture. God's glory. It's not about the church. It's not about the sacraments. It's not about any of those things. So he is critiquing the Protestant Reformation, and yet he's the first one to put them all together. To, he realizes that these five ideas, they're essential to what the Reformation was about. These five ideas, they are the pillars on which the Reformation is founded. Luther created a gigantic, gigantic storm when he nailed those 95 theses to that door, became the Reformation. And it's on these five ideas that Luther, and after him Calvin, and after him the Presbyterian John Knox, will base their concepts, their ideas, their critiques of the church. And they are our tradition, our story. And if you read our confessions, you'll find these five ideas over and over and over again. Never all side by side, but individually. Here, there, here, there. And so over the next five weeks, we are going to unpack them one by one. Okay, church history's over. If you tuned out, come back. This morning, we begin with grace. Grace alone. It's, this is the one that Luther... And Calvin spent a lot of time talking about it. And they both use this phrase, sola gratia, grace alone. 
So what is it? How do we define it? What is grace? Well, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey has a whole chapter called The Best Last Word. He says that grace is the best last word that Christianity has. That it's the only word that is still unspoiled. That when you say it, people know what you're talking about. And then he goes on to talk about all the ways that we use the word grace. We say grace before a meal. We are gratified. We're grateful. We congratulate. We are gracious. We leave gratuity. A composer or the choir or our organist, Tom George, might use grace notes to make a song sound that much better. Someone is a person of grace. Yancey also notes that in England, British subjects address royalty as your grace. Students may receive a grace, exempting them from certain requirements, or Parliament might declare an act of grace, pardoning a criminal. And here in the U.S., our own government has a term that we use to talk about someone who doesn't have grace, a persona non grata, or someone without grace or outside of grace, like Edward Snowden for his NSA weeks. We hear the word a lot. In fact, you might even know somebody named Grace. You might know a couple people named Grace. A quick search through my own iTunes library. Uh, I had 98 songs that had the word Grace in the title somewhere. It's a common word. It's all around us. It's something we ought to know well. Then what is it? What is grace? And why are the reformers so interested in it? And why is Paul talking about it in both the letter to the Romans and the letter to the Ephesians? He says, For it is by grace you have been saved. All are justified freely through His grace. So what is grace? There's a story about uh, a comparative religions conference that's happening at Oxford University in England. And these professors are arguing about what the greatest gift that Christianity gives to the field of study, to comparative religions. Is it the resurrection of Christ? Is that what's most notable? Is it the life of Christ? Is it the Bible? What is most notable about Christianity? And in walks author and theologian C.S. Lewis. Many of you have read his maybe Chronicles of Narnia or his uh, apologetics for your Christianity. So what's all the fuss about? What are you arguing about? And they say, well, what's the greatest gift that Christianity has given comparative religions? says, well, it's, it's easy. It's grace. And he walks out. Really funny story. It's very C.S. Lewis. You see, grace is everywhere. It's even in our own story. The biblical narrative, grace weaves itself in and out of the story. It is so constant that if you're not paying attention, you can kind of forget that it's even there. But it's always there. From the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of what? Nothing. Grace. Out of nothing, God creates everything. This is grace. On the seventh day, He gives man Sabbath, rest, grace. 
We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything for it. We didn't do any of the work. God did. And yet rest, grace. Along comes Noah. God shows grace. He could have destroyed the world, but no, God saves two of every kind. Grace. Abraham and Sarah, they have a child long after they are supposed to be able to. But this was a promise. But along the way, they'd forgotten the promise that God was going to give them a child. They take matters into their own hands. And God could choose to not keep his promise, but he doesn't. God gives them a child anyway named Isaac. Grace. Joseph becomes the steward of all of Egypt, thus saving God's people from a famine. This is after his own family, his brothers had sold him into slavery. After he'd been wrongfully accused of something he didn't do. Grace. Moses delivers the Israelites from Egypt. Grace. In the wilderness, they're provided food by manna that rains down from heaven and a pillar of fire at night. Grace. The story continues. Joshua, David. Grace. And even into the prophets. The prophets' message over and over. Israel, you have forgotten God. But God has not forgotten you. Grace. And then comes Christ. Still Christmas time and Epiphany is coming. The time where we celebrate and recognize that Jesus is more than just a baby. He is our Lord, our Savior, our King. And He didn't have to reveal God to us. That is grace. He didn't have to go to the cross for us. That is grace. He didn't have to defeat death for us. That's grace. Paul reminds us in Romans, the wages of sin is death. And in Ephesians, he tells the Ephesians, you used to be like everyone else walking in the flesh. You used to deserve death. But God defeated death. This is grace. And in his reminder, Paul shows us that it's nothing that we've done. It doesn't belong to us. We didn't do anything. It's all God's doing. In his commentary on Romans, uh, Karl Barth talks about how grace is not grace unless it is incomprehensible. If you can comprehend it, then it's not really grace. Or as other authors will say, it's not grace unless it's scandalous. This is grace. And if you think about your life, there are thousands of stories, story after story, where you see grace, where you experience grace. It's all around us. I was thinking of my own life, and, and back to just a silly story of when I was just an absolute pill to my mom all day long, complaining arguing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. Parents, does this sound familiar, right? You're nodding your head. Yes. I, I see some really exaggerated nods over here. Uh, I was like that all day. It was probably all week. An assignment was due and I really needed my mom's help. Did she ignore me? Did you say, Nathan, you have been so bad. Here's your consequence. You got to do this assignment on your own. Sometimes she did. And that was just. But sometimes she showed me grace. And she helped me anyway. 
grace. Can you think of a story in your own life? Grace shows up all over the place. And Jesus tells a story about grace. He tells many stories about grace. But this one is called the prodigal son. Do you know the story? We all know that story. There's a, there's a father. He has two sons. And the youngest son says, Dad, I'm sick of working all day. Parents are like, this still sounds familiar, right? I want my inheritance now. I want it all. Give it to me. Okay, son. So the son goes to a distant land, Scripture tells us, as far away as possible from mom and dad and his family, and he spends it all. Partying, girls, gambling, any immoral thing you can think of, he probably did it. Spends it all. And then one day it's gone. And to make ends meet, he finds himself working with pigs, feeding them. And he's so poor that he's actually living with them, eating the scraps of their food. And one morning he wakes up in the pig filth. I have cousins who are pig farmers. Pigs are gross, disgusting. He wakes up in the filth and he thinks to himself, my father's servants have it better than this. Maybe he'll take me back as a servant. So he goes home. And before he can even crest the hill, the father sees him and runs full speed, embracing his son and says, welcome home. Not where have you been? Not where is all your money? How terrible. I can't believe you wasted it all. No, no condemnation. Just a giant hug. Welcome home. Grace. And if that's not enough, if the father isn't lavish enough, he throws a giant party to welcome the son home. This is grace. The theological word for this idea is justification. That God justifies you. Because the reality is that if all of us all of us find ourselves in the courtroom of God, the judgment is going to come down. No, you are a sinner. You deserve death. But in Jesus Christ, the answer is no longer no. It is yes. That is grace. Or as my college small group leader used to remind us, Grace is the reality that you can't do anything more. You can't do anything to get more of God's love, nor can you do anything to lose God's love. It's always there. It's constant. Grace. So no matter where you find yourself this morning, regardless of what you've done or haven't done, the Father is waiting with arms open grace. There's the other side to this story called faith. And Paul mentions that here. It is by grace through faith. We're going to talk about that next week. This week, just sit in the grace. There's nothing we can do. Nothing that we have done. And yet it is there waiting. 
This morning, we're going to partake in communion. And we're going to experience grace. We're going to taste it. In fact, we call the sacraments, or a phrase that we like to use, they are outward and physical signs of an inward and spiritual what? Grace. It's grace on display for the whole world to see because we don't deserve this table. We didn't do anything to earn this table. And yet here is the feast of the Father waiting for us. It's ready. It's grace. There's nothing we can do to merit it. It is simply there. The Father is always waiting for us, beckoning us home. This is the narrative of who our God is. That's why C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy grace, because that's the story of Jesus Christ. That's the story of Scripture. That We don't deserve it, and yet here it is. So this morning, do you see grace? Can you taste it? Do you know what it looks like? This is why the reformers are so interested in grace. Because the church had gotten lost in all kinds of other stuff. People had to go to Rome to buy indulgences to save their loved ones from purgatory and all sorts of other things. And when Luther is reading Romans, he's going, no, it's free. It's grace. It's scandalous. It doesn't make any sense. But yet here it is. And God is inviting you this morning to taste it anew, to experience it anew. So I leave you this morning with these words. Um, I became a, a U2 fan. I don't know if we have any U2 fans around because my father-in-law happens to be a big U2 fan. And um, as son-in-laws do, do whatever you can to get in good with your father-in-law. He worked for GM for a number of years. I didn't know much about cars. Still don't know much about cars. But I know a lot about music. And so I listened to you 2 And this word came to mind. It's, or this song came to mind. It's simply called grace. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame. Removes the stain. It could be her name. Grace. It's the name for a girl, but it's also a thought that changed the world. When she walks on the street, you can hear the strings. Grace finds goodness in everything. She travels outside karma. When she goes to work, you can hear her strings. Grace finds beauty in everything. What once was hurt what once was friction, what left a mark, it no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Friends, grace makes beauty out of ugly things. This morning, may we be people, may we be people who receive this amazing grace that we might in turn share it with the world. Grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.